Good morning. Good morning. I'll ask you to turn to Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 24. It is a pleasure to be here with you all again, and I'd like to greet you all today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. It is by His power and by the resurrection of Christ that we come to worship. Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families, and kill the Passover. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lentil and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons after thee. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you as we've heard your word read to us and explained and we, Lord, behold the glories of your gospel. Father, we come together to worship you, to praise you, and Lord, we ask that your word, your Son, would sanctify us, Lord, that through the proclamation of your word that you would edify us to worship your holy name and to praise you in a greater light. Father, pour out Your Spirit to us. Revive our souls and uh, restore to us the joy of our salvation. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So as we've already heard from Jeremiah and from Acts, we have the sovereign grace of God that is constantly working throughout history. During the time period of the Reformation and, and the Puritans, we had a recovery of the gospel. And now we find ourselves living in a day where the gospel has altogether been forgotten. We are in a crisis because we are Christless. We are a people who do not know the Son of God and who have altogether forgotten what He has done on the cross. We put it in pithy little songs, and yet we do not actually understand what the Savior has done for us. So before we get into the sermon, by way of introduction into Exodus, what we've seen so far is that since the time of Joseph, who was pretty much a king, a prince over the Egyptians, he brought his family, Jacob and all all of Jacob's sons with him, into Egypt and they gave them the land of Goshen uh, by command of Pharaoh and they're dwelling in the land of Goshen and the people of Israel are waiting for God to move the history of redemption forward. They know the promises of God. They know they're not supposed to be in Egypt. They're supposed to be in the land of Canaan. Yet by God's grace, He allowed them to stay in Goshen during the time of the the drought and of the famine to preserve His people. And now we have Yahweh, Jehovah, calling Moses to be a preacher to the people for their deliverance and to the Egyptians for their terror. Through the plague that we will see, or that has preceded this passage, upon Egypt there is a dichotomy between the people of God and the people of the Egyptians. We see see God gracing His people, bestowing blessing to His people, but God also offering terror and dread to the Egyptians. And now we come to our text, which is God instituting the Passover, the feast for the Israelites, or excuse me, the, the slaying of the lamb for the Israelites, Um, so that they can see the soul separation that they have between the world. And therefore, our sermon title is Israel in the Hands of a Gracious God. So the sermon outline will be in three parts. First is the provision of God, which we will see in verses 21 and 22. Second, we see the promise of God, which is verse 23. And third, we see the purpose of God, which is in verse 24. And the thesis of this sermon is to display the gospel of Christ and to behold the glory of Jesus who grants to us from His fullness grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. 
So we come to our text in verse 21, and it reads as such, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel. Why did he call the elders of Israel together? This was before Jethro gave Moses the great advice of having a a series of 70 elders to commit judgment to the people because Moses had a burden upon him. He couldn't handle it. And the elders being given to, uh, to Israel is as a representation for the people. In some sort of sense, it was an aristocracy. Yes, it was a theocracy, but there are these officials, these elders who are the fathers of households who will come and deliver the message to the people. And this is out of the pure wisdom of God. There are thousands of, of, Israel's, of Israelites in Egypt right now. Thousands of them. And yet God is using Moses to call the elders to get together, these fathers of households, to go out and to declare to the people the message of God. We saw this earlier in Exodus chapter 3, where God commands Moses, uh, as he's uh, speaking to him in the burning bush, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. So the elders would have already been aware. Moses had already talked to them about what Yahweh was going to come and do for his people. So now I can't even imagine what they would hear when Moses is going to gather them together. Like, yes, we're going to be delivered. We're going to be taken from Egypt. These Egyptians who have been oppressing us for so long. Imagine their joy when they heard Moses, who they had already talked to, finally come to them and say, now is the time. And we go on in verse 21. And Moses said to these elders, draw out and take you a lamb. The sole task of the elder here is to go and fetch a lamb. Now why a lamb? I call this the post-lapsarian ordinance, or, or the, the after-the-fall ordinance that God had interwoven after the fall to the people of God for their salvation. They would have already recognized that they are supposed to commit offerings to God because they've sinned against Him. This is what you see in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. Abel was a sheep herder. And it said, And Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering. So we already see, immediately after the fall, Cain and Abel are giving offerings to God. God had given this to the people of God for their good. For their good, so that they do not die. We see in Genesis 22, when Abraham takes his son up, Isaac, to the mountain, to slay him per the command of God. Just as his blade is about to come down on Isaac, God yells, Stop! Don't do it! And Abraham looks and he sees a ram caught in the thickets. And God slays the ram in the stead of his son. Notice that is a substitution right there. The ram was the substitute for Isaac. And this is because we all ought to be Isaac. We all ought to die. In Leviticus it reads, You shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. Constantly the people of God are having to slay animals and slay animals and slay animals and slay animals. They have to see blood after blood after blood after blood. And why is that? Because Adam and Eve sinned against God. This takes us all the way back to the garden. In Genesis 2, God said, The day you eat of that tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, and the, and the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Elsewhere it says, the soul that sinneth shall die. We are supposed to die when we sin against God. And yet that doesn't happen to us. There's millions, billions of people on the planet right now. And that doesn't happen to us. We sin against God every single day and His grace is continually shown to us. He is so gracious and so merciful to us. This goes even back further than what we just read of Cain and Abel. After Adam and Eve had sinned, there's a possible speculation here, but God had provided for them coats of skin. God had already finished His work of creation. Did He just snap some some clothes together? No. He slayed an animal right before their eyes to show them When he said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, God didn't kill him. 
He slayed an animal in their stead. John Gill writes, he agrees with me, these were, or rather, I agree with him. He's, he's before me. <laughs> he says, these were made of the skins of beasts, of creatures slain, not merely for this purpose, nor for food, but for sacrifice. Immediately after the fall, God had given an ordinance to the people. When they sin, they must sacrifice, and therefore they sacrifice daily. They're constantly bringing things before the Lord. At the end of verse 21, it reads, They're to gather this lamb, draw this lamb out according to your families, and kill the Passover. Now, why does it say according to your families? Well, it's because the old covenant was fundamentally domestic. It was a familial covenant. The covenant passed on through their offspring. These elders here are supposed to be like Noah and take their families into the ark and flee God's judgment. Their families. It's, a, it's according to your families you slay this lamb. And again, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was fundamentally genealogical. It passed on through your offspring. And this is why you have the language, unto thee and thy seed after thee, so much throughout the Old Covenant. Genesis 17.9, and when God's giving the Abrahamic covenant, God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant therefore, thou and thy seed after thee and their generations. So again, this salvation for the Israelites here in the time of Egypt for the Passover, it is again domestic, it's familial, it is for them and their offspring. And this is what you see directly after our passage and also in the chapter, uh, chapter 13. Uh, God says to Moses, And when thy sons ask thee in a time to come, what is this? Why are, you, why are you doing the Passover? What is this all about? That thou shalt say unto him, By strength of the hand the Lord brought us, us, out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. So you see right here, again, this is all about the family. Their salvation here is fundamentally physical. Yes, it is representative in many ways of their spiritual salvation, but they were in a literal land called Egypt, being oppressed by physical, real people. And God is saving them. He's redeeming them, delivering them through the physical, literal water in the Red Sea when Moses split it by the power of God. That's all literal. This is what their salvation is. It is fundamentally for their physical offspring that they were brought out of the land of Egypt. And they were to kill this Passover for their families. And this should remind all of us of the beginning of Job. What does Job do? Again, this is the post-lapsarian ordinance. This is God's ordinance to mankind after the fall. Job offered sacrifices every morning for his children. Why? Because he says, perhaps they may have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. It doesn't say that they did. He says perhaps they did. This is what a godly father does. A godly father in this old covenant is offering sacrifices continually for his children because perhaps they curse God. And again, that goes back to we must die apart from a substitute. Now, when we read these passages, we must be careful. The Pado-Baptist or the Presbyterian error here is they want to assume that there's a continuity between the seed. There was a seed in the old covenant, the offspring, and there's a seed in the new covenant, our children. Now, this seed principle has been done away with because that seed is Christ. Christ is the seed. So there's no longer this genealogical flowing throughout history of the covenant being passed on because Christ is our covenantal head. And also, the seed principle is done away with because the seed fundamentally is also spiritual. It's by promise. That's why John says that we were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Amen. That's how you're born again. It's of God. It's not, by be, it's not by being born by a pastor. It's not by being born by a person who professes themselves to be a Christian. That's not what does it. What does it is the Holy Spirit working in your life. These Presbyterians also assume the same membership of the covenant. But as we've heard earlier, the new covenant is different. It's better. It's established on different promises. And it has different members. In Galatians, it says, But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, and, uh, which is the mother of us all. So us as the believers, we are now not under the physical Jerusalem, but under the heavenly Jerusalem. 
And lastly, in Hebrews 8, quoting Jeremiah 31, it says, They all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. That's the difference of the covenant there. They all shall know me. Now again, the Old Testament was fundamentally genealogical by bloodline. The New Testament is actually genealogical by spiritual birth. So now let's get back into the meat of the matter. These elders were supposed to kill the Passover. That shows that the Passover and the lamb are almost synonymous here. He says, kill the Passover. Or in other words, it's synonymous to say, kill the lamb. The Passover is identifiable by the lamb. The shedding of the Passover was actually the saving faith by which the Israelites trusted in the promises of God. It was not just mere blood splattered on the doorpost that did it. They trusted what God said. He said, I will deliver you when you do this. God is saving His people and we must trust His promises. In Hebrews 11, it, it, uh, it writes that through faith, He, being Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. This is all of faith here. The Israelites are not trusting in a lamb. They're trusting in the promises of God, who ultimately, as we shall see, is providing us the lamb of God. So what is this Passover as a memorial? What is this supposed to represent? Well, in Exodus 13, 14, as we've already seen, when your sons ask you, what is this? You shall say to him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us from Egypt, from the house of bondage. So when they continually perform the Passover, what it's supposed to represent is their deliverance. When God passes over the people of Israel, he didn't kill them. That is so self-obvious that It's God saving His people. Him not killing them is their salvation. So, we constantly, for the Israelites, they need to be looking back to the promises of God, and chiefly, all throughout the whole Old Testament, they constantly look back to the Passover and the Red Sea, and God bringing His people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is what you see in Psalm 106. Our fathers understood not the wonders in Egypt, They remembered not the multitudes of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. And he saved them from the hand of him that hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then believed they his words. They sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel. So why did Israel continually sin after God? They forgot his works. They forgot what he had done for them. That's clearly what it says right there. They remembered not. They understood not. They forgot. They did not remember God's deliverance for them because, well, that was way back then. And we do the same thing. We forget that God time and time and time again saves His people. And yet we think, well, that was just, maybe that was a fairy tale. You know, maybe what God did through the Reformers and the Puritans, that's just, you know, the winners wrote history, right? So we can't really know. No. When we look back and see God's deliverance, we rejoice, but we also fear for ourselves. We must remember that we must be delivered. We must have God's saving grace upon us. So these Israelites, they needed to look back to the Passover, but they also needed to look forward to what the Passover was all about, what the substance of the matter of the Passover really was. And what is it? We all should know the answer. Christ is our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. What is the Passover really pointing to? What is this memorial all about? It's about Jesus. Newsflash. The whole Bible's about Jesus. Every single jot and tittle, the whole Old Covenant is about Christ. So when we read it, we must have an eye to Christ. This is not about just a mere lamb being slain, the blood poured into a basin and struck upon the doorframe. This is about Jesus Christ's salvation for His elect throughout all history. We must see ourselves in this passage in application. In application, we have to see that Christ is our redemption. Why Christ, though? 
Why couldn't it have been any other path? Why did Jesus, the Son of God, have to go to a cross, spill His blood for sinners, die a criminal's death on our behalf, be buried and raised again? Why? Why this Christ? It's because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. They couldn't keep on with these sacrifices. There's so many Old Testament passages where God says, I'm not satisfied with your sacrifices. But that's what God had commanded. I would, I would be so confused if I was an Israelite. What do you mean, Lord? You've commanded this of us. You said this is how we have atonement. It's because they didn't have an eye to Christ. They must be looking forward to the Son of God who takes away our sins. As it says in Hebrews 9, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? These blo- the blood of bulls and goats, it did purify them. That's what the passage says. It did purify them. But why? Why did God accept this? Because God had passed over these former sins knowing that He was going to send forth His Son in the fullness of time to redeem those who were under the law, which is us. All of us, Jew and Gentile alike. He was going to send His Son for sinners. Friends, if every bull and goat that ever existed had its blood spilt for you, it would not appease the just wrath of God for your sin. If there is but a fraction, a minute fraction of one drop of the blood of Christ upon you, this infinitely worthy, wonderfully majestic, all-sufficiently perfect blood of the Son of God, then God acquits your guilt and passes over you in judgment. There are no sacrifices that you can offer. It's not how many times you go to church. It's not all your filthy good works which God hates. It's the perfect righteousness of His Son and His Son alone. If you have no Christ, you're Christless. And if you're Christless, you have no salvation. You must have Christ. Apart from Christ, we are only to be slain and thrown into hell. That is the only thing that we're good for. Christ, His sacrifice is once and for all. There's no longer the slaying of lambs, of bulls, of heifers, goats, all these things. There's no more slaying of Christ over again like these other things. Bulls, lambs, and goats. The reason they had to be sacrificed continually is because they were not good enough. They weren't. But the precious blood of Christ appeases the just and infinite wrath of God. That's how you can be in eternal bliss with God in heaven. Through nothing you've done, but only the blood of Christ. You remember, these elders are supposed to grab, take a lamb. John, when he comes on the scene, says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So how do we understand the elders taking, taking a lamb? Who, who got the Lamb of God for us? It's the Father. It's the Father. In Hebrews it reads, I can't remember where it's at, you maybe have covered this already, but a body thou hast prepared for me. You've prepared a body for me, the Lord Jesus says. Because the Father had gotten us a lamb. He's drawn this lamb to Himself. He's taken hold of Him in His body. And the Father crushes the Son on the cross. He crushes Him. The Father does all these things for us. And yet the unbeliever, the atheist, looks at that and says, this is a criminal offense, this is child abuse. No. Christ willingly went to the cross for our sins. Because He hated sin. So He took sin on Himself to die for us. Do you find yourself in the bondage of Egypt under the plague of sin and guilt? Flee to Christ, your Passover lamb. Do you find yourself hopeless in the house of bondage? Flee to Christ, your Passover lamb. Do you find yourself thinking you walk well? In the commandments of God. Take heed lest you fall and flee to Christ the Passover Lamb. The same way you became a Christian is the same way you'll stay a Christian. Always have an eye to Christ every single day of your life. Keep your eyes on the heavenly things which is Christ. Christ is the whole substance of the heavens. Keep your eye up there. And as we've heard, not down here on the world. 
Not down here on the world. Luther says, Either sin is with you lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. It's one of the two. You're either born again or you're not. You either have the blood of Christ or you don't. There's no in-between. You can't get halfway to the kingdom of God. There's no purgatory or limbo for you. It's only heaven or hell. The blood of Christ or no blood at all. And that is our hope as Christians. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. That is it. And we go on to verse 22. It reads, And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. So the Passover lamb was slain, but that was not it. That was not good enough. That's not all that was required. They were supposed to take the blood, grab, they were supposed to grab a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood that was in the basin, and splatter it over the frame of the door. This shows that we must exercise our faith. We must take hold of the promises of God. That is what taking the bunch of hyssop is. Hyssop is also commonly used as both a medicinal use in Israel and also a spiritual use in their ceremonial rites. We see this in Leviticus 14. It says, Then shall the priest command to take for him, that is, the leper, that is to be clean, cleaned uh, two birds alive and clean, and cedar wood and scarlet and hyssop. Hyssop was supposed to be used for the leprosy here. And David prays in Psalm 51, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. So why are they grabbing a bunch of hyssop? The Spirit does not breathe out words that are mute points. This is all important for us to understand. When he talks about taking a bunch of hyssop, this is showing the spiritual cleansing that's happening here. Matthew Henry writes, Faith is the bunch of hyssop by which we apply the promises to ourselves and the benefits of the blood of Christ laid up in them. So we ourselves must grab hold of the hyssop by faith. Look to Christ our Savior, His blood spilt, and we must diluge ourselves in it. Completely and totally fall upon the Savior. That is what we must do. And this brings us to that blood in the basin. The blood was not merely spilt and thrown on the ground to be trampled on. It's not to be treated as something common or unholy. This is holy blood. And Gill writes of this, the blood being received into a basin and not spilled on the ground and trampled on may denote the preciousness of the blood of Christ. The true Passover lamb, which is for its worth and excellent efficacy to be highly prized and esteemed and not to be counted as a common or unholy thing. So lest any man say that there be dirt found in the blood and say there's something else that cleansed them, we must recognize this is the pure, blameless, spotless blood of Christ. Just as He is pure, blameless, and holy, and spotless, so too is His blood. There's nothing mixed or fused with it. It is only the blood. The hyssop is dipped in this basin, in the precious blood of Christ by faith. And it's splattered over the doorframe here. Of the blood being splattered, Matthew Henry writes, it was not enough that the blood of the Lamb was shed, but it must be sprinkled, denoting the application of the merits of Christ's death to your own soul. Again, it is so important for us to notice, it is not enough for you to just glory in Christ dying for the sins of sinners. As you've heard earlier, You must glory in the fact that Christ died for you. That His blood covers you. That your sin has been dealt with on Calvary's cross. That's what Jesus did. If you glorify in the blood of Christ to such a degree that you never actually realize or even acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you need cleansing, you'll be glorifying this blood all the way to hell. All the way to hell. You must not just have all these doctrinal truths in your mind. You must take hold of them and believe them by faith. That is what it means to be a Christian. And that is what's so silly about all these so-called reformed people, or even on the other side, the Arminians. It's not just a propositional doctrine. It's not just propositional truths that you say, yeah, I actually I, I side with that, I agree with that. That is not what it's about. Doctrine, unless it's practiced, 
or the blood of Christ, unless it's, unless it's taken hold of, is only a detriment to you. We must take hold of these things by faith. And that's why in Hebrews it says, let us draw near, not far away and merely affirming what these doctrines say, but let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can't stand far back anymore. The Pharisees did that and they loved Jesus until they got close. Amen. We cannot stand far off. We must come near to the blood of the Lamb and take hold of Him and never let Him go. But it's not our holding that saves us. It's the Savior. We always have to hold those intention. And that's why Peter says that we are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood sprinkles us clean. Do not trust in your own devices. Do not trust in your good works. Trust in what Jesus has done for us and that you've been sprinkled clean. In verse 22, at the end, it says, And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until morning. When the Lord is in the midst of judgment, you do not go out to the town square seeing what's up. You stay in your house. The Lord is coming with swift judgment, with a dagger in hand. We must also hide ourselves in Christ. First John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in this world. We must not go out there, but we must reside in the house of the Lord. And Ephesians 2 says that we've been lifted up there. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We must remain there and stay there in the judgment of God. In Isaiah 26, we find out why do they hide in their homes. He says the same thing. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself as, as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. So again, we must shut our door, tightly shut it, make sure it's sealed. Hide ourselves in Christ until the indignation be overpassed. That is what we do until it's overpassed. When God comes down from the heavens, that is not a good thing for people. That's exactly what it says in, in Genesis 18 with Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord speaking to Abraham and he says, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down. Sometimes we sing the most crazy stuff about wanting God to come down from heaven. No, no, no. We don't want that. We would love to hold on to Him, but we are still in our sin. We would die if we saw Him. We would die if He came down, all of us together. That's why we want to go up to heaven or have heaven brought down here in the end. You do not want God to come down. You will die. Friends, the terror of God is coming and we must hide ourselves in Christ or we will be damned. As it says in Psalm 32, Thou art my hiding place. You are my hiding place. We must hide in Christ. And the reason they're to wait until the morning, Matthew Henry puts it well, is because God would imitate to them their safety was owing to the blood of sprinkling. If they put themselves from under the protection of that, it was at their peril. So lest they think it was anything else but the blood, he says, don't go out till morning. Wait till my indignation be overpassed. Stay in your house because it's sealed by the blood. Remain there until my indignation was overpassed. Christ, the morning light of our redemption, has appeared to offer His precious blood. If we are united to Him, then we shall escape this wrath. If we're united to Him, then this indignation is overpassed. So we must constantly examine ourselves to make sure we are in Christ. Now the second point here, and don't worry, they're getting shorter. So, The second point here is the promise of God. First off, we had the provision of God, and now we look at the promise of God. Verse 23, it begins, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. We need to emphasize that will there. This is the promise. I will do this thing. When God promises something, it happens 100% of the time. The Passover here of God sending the destroyer in is not some cute little story for us to just tell to our kids. This is something for us to look at and to tremble at. 
Because God is holy and righteous and is angry at the wicked every single day. We must be terrified of this great God. And in Ezekiel it says, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in thee, and it shall devour every green tree in thee, and every dry tree. The flaming flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south to the north shall be burned therein. And all flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. This is terrifying, friends. When the Israelites were having this memorial of the Passover years later, and they look back, do they just see the cutesy stuff? Do they just see God saving them, taking them out of Egypt? No. They have in the forefront of their mind what's literally before them and the lamb being cut and all the blood being spilled. We don't normally get to see anything like that because we're not agrarian at all in our society anymore. But when you look at something being cut open and all of its blood spilling out, um, I was going to go into that a little bit but with a chicken, but never mind. Um, it is a terrifying thought. That is what sin does to us. So they would have had that in the forefront of our minds. So we also must be constantly thinking back to the judgment of God. Paul says all the time to them, you were once this. We must always look back to what we were and seeing that God hated us in our state. But we also must look forward to what God has done in us, that He has justified us by the blood of His Son and has brought redemption to us in Him. Our God is a consuming fire. And as it says in Isaiah 8, let Him be your fear, let Him be your dread. As a Christian, we must fear God, not in judgment, but fear God and His holy character as a gracious Father. This judgment of Egypt is a microcosm or a small little world in this localized place of Egypt of what the macrocosm will be in the final judgment of the whole earth. We must hold intention that the graciousness of God is only seen as gracious when we see the sinfulness of sin and God's hatred for it. Jonathan Edwards writes in his infamous sermon, The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads, wicked sinners, and it is nothing but the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mere will that holds it back. So even for people who are not in Christ, they are still required to give thanks to God because God allows them to be alive. His sword is brandished over their head every moment, and yet at the same time, He doesn't kill them. He stays his hand. And this is why the unbeliever must thank God. They must thank God, or else it is sinful. How much more this mercy of Pharaoh. Constantly, God was merciful to Pharaoh, giving him time to repent. Yes, we understand that God is the one who hardened his heart first. But Pharaoh also hardened his heart. We have to hold these two in tension. First cause of God, second cause of Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart and he did not view God's grace and kindness to him and letting him live and turn to God in repentance. But he hardened his heart time and time and time again. All of this screams in Romans 2, 4 and 5 to me. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Pharaoh should have repented. He should have turned to God because God was gracious to him. Yet what is Pharaoh's in Romans 2.5? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasureth up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath. That's what Pharaoh did. He didn't view the brandishing sword over him and yet God's mercy in not killing him as a grace. He didn't view it that way. Instead he viewed it, well what about my kingdom? He was earthly focused, not heavenly focused. Friends, the wrath of God is coming and we must take heed of what happened to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for what will ultimately happen to all the world. We must take heed of that. Or else God will bind us hand and foot, rend us into pieces, and cast us into hell. At the end of verse 23 it says, these glorious words, And when he seeth the blood 
upon the lintel and on the two side posts. The Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. The Lord enters into Egypt from his holy mountain and pours out his immense hatred upon the vile wicked sinners and begins to slaughter all the firstborn. Yet he comes to one house, he looks up, and what does he see on the frame of the door? He says, I see the blood. I see the blood. That is God's mercy to us as He's provided us a lamb. He's grabbed the Son. He's prepared a body for Him. He slayed Him on the cross. He buried Him in a tomb. He raised Him from the grave. This is God's mercy to us, which as Christians we must look to every single day. If we continue to forget about Christ, we will forget about Christ in our works. We'll forget about Christ in our devotions to our family. We'll forget about Christ when we're evangelizing. We must always have an eye to the glorious gospel. We want to be, have men of range. We want to have all these other great truths of systematics. But remembering that the one truth that holds them all together, that makes sense of all of them, is the gospel. If we have not the gospel, we have not nothing. Spurgeon says as well, While he did rend his enemies like a lion, yet did he, did he protect his children, every one of them. And this is why the, ti- the sermon of the title is Israel in the Hands of a Gracious God. God is so gracious to us. Do you not see you in this passage? Christ died for you if you're a believer. Would you not look to Christ every day? Would you not seek to take hold of this sweet Savior? And that one day when you die and you stand before that great white throne of judgment, your lips will open to confess all of your blasphemies against God and your godless practices against Him. You will feel the heat of the mouth of hell opening up beneath you to swallow and devour you whole. You will be standing on a line on one way is everlasting life, on the other is everlasting damnation. Hell will swallow you whole. And when you look up at God and you see the just, holy righteousness of God, what will you say to Him? Lord, let me in. No. You'll say, depart from me. I am a wicked sinner. Depart from me. I am not to be drawn near to you. You are holy. Cast me into the deepest, fiery, wicked part of hell. Cast me there. And yet, what will happen? You will hear one crying from a distance. And you will hear the Father say, Alas, I see the blood. I see the blood. Don't throw him there. Bring him into my table. Bring him into my feast. Put all the precious garments on him. Put a crown upon his head. Amen. That is what the Father will say. And brothers, we have to get this right. We have to have a view of this. Why were the Reformers and the Puritans so powerful in their day? We have hardly no books about the person of Christ. And yet that is all that they wrote about. They loved Christ. That is all they wanted to do was study Christ. And yet we don't even read about Him. We want to read a book about five simple steps to improve your marriage. That's what we want to read about. We must look to Christ and see that He is the only possible Savior. In Isaiah 31 it writes, As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also He will deliver it, and passing over He will preserve it. God will both defend you and preserve you. Look to the glorious Savior. He will do these things He's promised. And that is all the assurance you need. Nothing you've done. If you have believed on Christ, you are saved. Do not wallow in your sin any longer. If you are Christ's, you are free forevermore. Were it not for Jesus, we would stand naked before a just God and He would rend us into pieces. He would destroy us. So we've seen the provision of God in providing a lamb for us. We've seen the promises of God saying, I will not enter the house to destroy you because I see the blood. And now we see the purpose of God. In verse 24, it writes, And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance. 
The institution of the Passover was purposed by God to be a safety, make, a safety mechanism to stir up the faith of the Israelites as they looked back at Yahweh's salvation in the past and looked forward to his perpetual deliverance from sin. That is why they constantly uh, did the memorial, the institution of the Passover, so that they could excuse me, constantly see that God is faithful to deliver his people. In the midst of Josiah's reforms, the most preeminent thing that he did that you see in the passage is that he consecrated the Passover. It says in 2 Kings, And the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover unto the Lord your God, as, as it is written in the book of this covenant. Surely there was not holding such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel, nor of the kings of Judah. How do we understand this? Where's the gospel at? Have we forgotten the gospel? Have we not looked at the book of the covenant? Have we not looked at the Bible and seen what God has done for us? I think without a doubt that has been the identifiable part of America for the past several decades, hundreds of years. We've forgotten the gospel. We used to read it every day in school, pray to the Lord who saved us. They would consecrate feasts and fasts nationally to our God and Savior. And yet we've altogether forgotten. We've forgotten the gospel. We forgot who God is. We forgot what God has done. And the way we also can apply this is we, have, we must not take the ordinances of God lightly. The ordinances that, that God has given us in the new covenant, we must look to them and see the glorious salvation of God. In 1 Corinthians 10.16 it reads, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? The Corinthians had forgotten. They're out there having the precious elements of the Lord's table mixed with meat offered to wicked, demonic forces. They forgot. Do we still forget? Do we forget? When we take communion, this is not just a a mere memorial. It's not just merely looking at the elements and just kind of thinking, yeah, Jesus... Was it 2,000 years ago? Yada, yada, yada. When we take the elements, we must say, Hallelujah, Christ died for me. Mm. In Galatians, it reads, For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Do we recognize that there's not something mystical or magical in the water? That God's really doing something in the water? That He is saying, You are mine? Or do we just see, well, that guy's kind of getting somewhat of a bath. Maybe he doesn't have to take a bath today. We must not take the ordinances of God lightly. These ordinances are sanctifying insofar as we have a view of Christ as their meaning. All other notions of the ordinances are mere pitiful imaginations which incur judgment of God upon us. Of this, Matthew Henry writes, The perfecting of God's mercies to us must be waited for in a humble observance of his institutions, or of his ordinances. We must wait for God. That is how we shut out the doors of God's judgment. We shut ourselves into God. As we wait for him in prayer, and fasting, and reading the word, and taking the Lord's table together, and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, of going down into the water when, on, upon profession of faith. That is how we wait for God. And oftentimes we think it's other ways. We must do it this way. Or else we'll have it no way. Brothers, we chiefly remember the Passover of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world when the table is provided for us weekly. Though they are not the same, we must always have a view of Christ when we take this. And verse 24 ends writing, To thee and thy sons after thee. We've already dealt with the paedo-baptist assumption, so we won't deal with that here again. So even though this bloodline, this is the covenant is not passed on by a bloodline, there is still a deep responsibility of parents to teach their children and to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Spurgeon said, uh, begin to teach them early for they sin early. We must be teaching our children what it means to believe in God. I think we have totally misunderstood the family in our day today, which is why I appreciate this is a family integrated church. 
our kids, we don't just toss them aside and say, no, don't come to Christ. We say, no, come. Come to Christ. Behold your Savior. Look at Him. That's what we want to do. And yet we hate our children. We throw them off into public schools where they're teach, taught how to hate God, to love uh, Darwinism and evolutionary thinking, to love materialism, to be jealous and envious of other people who maybe have better clothes than they do. We hate our kids by not reading to them the Word, not teaching them to pray. We hate our kids by not praying for them. We hate our wives by not praying for her. You don't merely pray with your wife, you pray for your wife. We must be doing all these things and not neglect the family. A man who does not love and sacrifice for his family is no man at all. He is but an effeminate coward who will be judged by God. So you men in this room, and you men who don't have families yet, Lord willing, you will one day, take this as the highest calling. When you get home after a hard day, hard day, a hard day of work, don't say, well, honey, i got to go read Calvin's Institutes. You need to love your wife. Let everything else be damned. And you need to love your wife. Stop playing video games. Stop reading theology books sometimes. But love your wife. The Lord will provide the power. The power doesn't come from reading Calvin. The power doesn't come from reading Matthew Henry or John Gill. The power comes from Christ. Jeremiah 10.25 says, Pour out thy fury upon the heathen that know thee not. That's scary. What's next is more terrifying. And on the families that call not on thy name. The families that call not on thy name. That is terrifying. I know for me. We must recover the glorious gospel. The Puritans wondered at this gospel. The angels longed to look into the gospel to understand it. We also must wonder at the gospel. We must study the gospel. We must study the doctrine of God, as we talked earlier. Because that is where the gospel begins. We must understand the wrath of God, the jealousy of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. We can't just study just the wrath of God to beat people on the head with it. We must study the grace of God to give them the balm of the gospel. And I am convinced if we continue to be Christless, we will always remain in a crisis. In closing, Spurgeon said this, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. May the Lord bless this to us. And would we take seriously these words? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, you are so good to us, Lord. While we were still sinners, you sent your Son to die for us, Lord. Oh, Christ, we thank you for your body and your blood which was spilt for us, Lord. In spirit, we thank you, Lord, that you, with a bunch of hyssop, have dipped it into the blood of Christ and you've applied these things to us, Lord. May we be a people who love you, who wonder at the gospel. And Lord, as John writes, that we would behold your glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Would we see this in Christ's name? Amen.